0: Hello, everyone. Guy Adami here with my dear friend, Dan Nathan. It's Tuesday, January 12th. We took last week off. We're back now for the macro setup brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Nadex, the leading U.S. exchange for binary options, call spreads. And I'll spare Dan this time and knockouts as well. Lots taken place over the last couple of weeks. I mean, so much to talk about here, Dan, in terms of valuations, risk, uh, what's going on politically. But yet here we are on Tuesday the 12th, and the S&P seems to be exactly where we were when we did our last macro setup. It's fascinating that the market seems to look past everything. Love to hear your takes.
1: Uh, Great to be back with all the folks from Nadex here. You know, interesting, like you said, Guy, you know, the the calendar turned, um, the news flow kind of came in hot and heavy the same way it had been right up until the end of the year. And like you said, the S&P 500 really barely blinked. We saw some quick profit taking on the first trading day of the year, but since then kind of making it back in some of those kind of speculation pockets that we've been talking about on the macro setup over the last few months have really kicked into full gear in a way, you know? And so I, I guess it's just really interesting when you think about, um, you know, we had been kind of targeting um, the election and then what does the Congress look like, right? And what does that mean for a whole host of other things going forward? And then we had the, the Senate runoff, which was obviously a big thing. So all of that came to pass. Um, there was obviously what happened in the Capitol last weekend and the markets didn't blink. I mean, well, how, how do you kind of diffuse all of that, Guy? What are investors, um, why are they not concerned about some of this headline
0: risk? It's amazing. You know, we talked about it on fast money. And if you'd told me on the night before, all the things were going to transpire, I guess I was that Wednesday at the Capitol and you had said, guy, where's the market anywhere from 800,000 points. The dollar's going to get whacked. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the gold's going to go higher. The VIX is going to be either side of 30. Uh, and maybe you see a flight to quality in a form of bond yields. And every one of those things would have been wrong. It's incredible. And, you know, I find myself shocked all the time. And I think that day for me was one of the most shocking days in terms of the market reaction. And how do you identify it? How do you um, e- explain it? I think it comes down to one word, the Federal Reserve. And that's more than one word I know, but you understand what I'm saying. I think yeah. the market has this belief that the Fed has their back and there's going to be this, you know, more stimulus, more money put into the system. And all this leads back to the equity market. I think that's short sighted, I think that's misguided. Uh, but right now, the market seems to think that's the right way to look at things. And we're going to talk about euphoria, Dan, but that's my view on what's been going on over the last couple of weeks.
1: Yeah, I think to your point, it really does come back to what the Fed has been indicating for the better part of 2020, right? Obviously, since the pandemic was the main story, um, you know, that chart right there of, of uh euphoria panic index just shows you that their readings and the inputs that they um, kind of um, tabulate that reading for are just off the charts here, right? And so it is different this time. You know, the Fed's been telling us that they are going to let inflation run hot. They're not going to uh, raise rates for a couple years. They're going to continue to buy um, all sorts of, of, of assets, um, you know, um, MBS, uh, mortgage-backed securities, mm-hmm. $40 billion a month, that sort of thing. So, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, they're trying to keep uh, monetary policies easy as possible. And they're willing to let asset bubbles kind of bubble up. I guess the only issue is that we know that in the last, you know, 20 years or so, when that has been the case, that the bubble keeps, blow, you know, kind of getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But ultimately, it does burst and, and it does leave um, some destruction in its wake here. So, you know, we can move on from that. I mean, I, I just don't even know what else yeah. to say, say about that. But quickly,
0: that. I just want to say, just quickly stand this truck for a second. I know yeah. we want to move on. But, you know, you look at this and we talk about, we talk to people, And we ask them if there's any similarities between now and 2000. A lot of people say, no, they're not. You know what? They're right. It's actually worse now when you look at this chart and you go back. That peak was in 2000. And now you look at this panic euphoria index and we're so we're considerably through what we saw in 2000. And that speaks to a lot of different things. Uh, Hubris is one of those things. Complacency is another one of those things. But you're right, folks. It isn't like 2000. In terms of this specific chart, it's a lot worse. And we can move on from there. But I think it's worth pointing out, Dan.
1: Yeah. What's interesting, though, about the comparison to 2000 was that, you know, it really the asset bubble was in public equities. I mean, there wasn't this huge amount of capital that was sitting on uh, pension sheets, balance sheets that were in um, you know, private tech companies, that sort of thing, and and, and I guess Exhibit A for this, it, you know, is the speculation that is caused by the euphoria is the Bitcoin, you know. And we had um, our good friend Brian Kelly, um, who runs a digital asset uh, firm, on the macro setup a few, uh, maybe a month and a half ago, when this thing was just kind of going parabolic. But I don't think anyone thought that it would do what it did. In just the last month, and you know we have a one-year chart of this thing. When you look at this, you know, and when it broke out above ten thousand, just back in October, then it doubled to twenty thousand. That was the all-time, the prior all-time high from December two thousand and seventeen, January two thousand and eighteen. We know what happened after that. It went from twenty thousand down to, I think at its lows, maybe 3,000. So, mm-hmm. you know, this base had been building for the better part of 2020, and then it just kind of went ballistic. I think it was high as 42,000 the other day, traded as low as 30,000 from 42,000 to 30,000, a 24-hour period. It's since come back a little bit, but we have this five-year log chart of Bitcoin, and this is the one that we had kind of highlighted on a couple of occasions prior to that breakout. That's what a lot of speculators were looking at—a long-term breakout, twenty thousand becoming the new support on the way down. And I think a lot of, um, you know, a lot of people who believe the fact, all the things that you have said about the Fed and why you want to own gold for a store of value is a certain percentage of your portfolio. I think that the kind of the flip. Um, The switch flipped a little bit here. And a lot of those people that normally go into gold, we're going to hit the gold chart later, are kind of in the Bitcoin institutional adoption. Their ability to hold these digital assets now has changed the game here. So I'm just saying to you, if you see this thing back towards 20,000, that's where a lot of people are going to step in. But don't forget that 2019 high is down there at 14,000. The volatility of this asset is the thing that attracts a lot of people. But for the last year, they've only seen it gone one way.
0: Yeah, and it's what's going to be unfortunate here, I think, and that could be a hundred percent wrong. I think it's the fact that 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 move from maybe twenty eight thousand to forty two thousand probably dragged a lot of latecomers in that, quite frankly, sh- shouldn't be in this asset class. And that move from forty two thousand ish down to thirty thousand was abrupt. It was scary, and to think that it can't happen from this thirty three thousand level back to twenty is probably misguided. And, you know, typically the ends of moves tend to bring in uh, sometimes the weakest hands. And I think to a certain extent, that's what you're seeing now. I think you have to have a plan for Bitcoin. I think the plan should be, if you haven't gotten in, wait for the move. The, in, in my opinion, the inevitable move back to 20,000, where we take a look back at that twenty December 2017 high and obviously the level that we broke out from. I think that's the prudent thing to do And if you miss it, it's one of those things, you know, you just say you missed it and you move on. But if you're looking for this for a trade, that's where I'd be trading it right now, Dan.
1: Yeah. So you talk about, um, you know, kind of some of these latecomers to um, a mania. And that's really what we have here in a couple of different uh, risk assets here. Let's go to Tesla. You know, this is one that we also talked about over the last couple of months here. This is just a one year chart. You see at its lows in March. You know, this thing had a sub 70 billion dollar market cap and now it's up, you know, um, I think it's $600, $700 billion. It's greater than all of the publicly traded auto companies the world over combined. It has a bigger mm-hmm. market cap than all of them. It has about 1% of global auto market share. And when you look at that, um, where the stock really started going parabolic in mid-November, is that's when the S&P 500 said it was adding it to the index. It went in the index about a month later in December 18th, and the stock has gone from 400. It's up over 100%. That's a mania. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. Elon Musk may be the most genius person who's ever stepped foot on this planet. And I say that like that because I think some people on this call believe that he might not be from this planet. Guy, uh, you know, I'm not sure if you want to go there right now, but this is a mania and it's being driven by, I think, retail to a great degree. I don't think institutions are getting there buying it. And that's to your point, coming late to this sort of thing. This reminds me most of 2000. Um, It also reminds me when you think about who's buying this stock, it's the Robinhood traders. These are people Mm -hmm. that, hey, all the power to them if they're getting rich buying all this stuff. But going back to 2000, when the E trade was the thing, when online brokerage was just really proliferating, you know, armies of day traders were fueling a lot of these gains and stocks being where they shouldn't have been let's take uh, i'd love to get your take on this one in particular what it means about these kind of latecomers, and then let's move to valuations because that's a really
0: important point too well i've said it for a while and and people say how can you opine on tesla the stock if you don't understand the company and i can understand that that um that point of view but you know i just try what we're trying to do on our show fast money and on this is try to give you levels and and ideas To trade around, and I've said it for a while. Say it again. I don't necessarily completely understand Tesla, but I do think I understand the stock. And I said it a couple different things over the last year, year and a half. And the first thing, quickly, was the Joe Kernan interview with uh, President Trump from Davos almost a year ago, uh, when Joe Kernan asked the president, you know, what he thought about Elon Musk. And I'm paraphrasing, but President Trump said something to the effect of, "We did right by him when his company's in trouble." And now he's going to do right by us. I encourage you to go back and look at that interview. That to me was alarming and startling. And quite frankly, since that interview, with the exception of the move in March, stock has never looked back. And then quickly in May of 2020, when the stock made an all-time high of 703, Elon Musk tweeted out that the stock was overvalued or too rich or something to that extent. The sell-off lasted for a day. And those two points sort of led me to believe that this stock is impervious. And I still believe that, by the way. And it's being fueled by a lot of people who just have seen the stock go nothing but higher and somehow believe uh, this company such. So we'll see what happens. There's gonna be a day, and I think you, you uh, agree with this, Dan, where Tesla could be down 15 to 20% in one day. I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility. I can't speak to the implied volatility of the options but I think if you're in the name, you have to prepare yourself for that. And and by almost extension, the broader market as well, Dan.
1: Yeah, I, I listen, we highlight Tesla because neither one of us have any kind of axe to grind one way or another. But when you see a company go from $70 billion to $700 billion in a matter of 10 months, and the fundamental story has not really changed a whole heck of a lot. And I just, again, I focus on the fact that in November 16th, prior to the S&P, 500 announcement, the stock was down um, 20% from its September 2nd all-time high. It looked like it was actually going to break down a bit. So obviously institutions got in there and started buying in front of the ad, then shorts started to cover, then the day traders piled in, right? It was a good old-fashioned Short squeeze here, but what's going on? If you just look at that breakout um, above the prior high this year, which was six ninety five on the day of the ad, that is retail, in my opinion. That is not institution. So buyer beware, right there. And we just show that really, um, you know, that that kind of uh, big uptrend there. So you know, to me, that that's just again, we we highlight this Bitcoin and Tesla as just an expression of the kind of euphoric sentiment that we think. Um, Exists for risk assets and largely at the feet of the Fed, allowing um, these risk asset bubbles to kind of move on. Let's talk valuations here. We have two metrics that are very popular um, for a lot of investors to quote. This is the PE of the S and P 500, the price to earnings trading at about 22 times forward. That is well above the 17 and a half times of the last five years and about 15 and a half. Um, of the last 10. So you think forward valuations are getting stretched here. We know that Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, Google, uh, and Amazon, we call that MAGA. throw the T for Tesla on there at the end, you got F it. And you know, that makes up what, 15% of the S&P 500. And we know those valuations are getting stretched. What's your take on valuation? And does valuation matter?
0: Well, I do think valuations matter. I've always thought the, the stocks are built on four basically pillars, four corners. It's, it's revenue, revenue growth, earnings and earnings growth. And there's no way to get around that. Yeah, there are times in history where the market has looked past that, but it always comes back to those four things. Now, your question is, do valuations matter? Well, I do think they do. But apparently Jerome Powell doesn't think they do, because about a month ago, he said such that in the world of um, basically free money. Valuations really don't matter. Again, I'm paraphrasing, but I encourage you to go back and look and see what he said because I found it fascinating that he would make that comment. And right now the market doesn't think valuations matter. So again, you know we talked about the levels we saw in 2000, uh, in terms of uh, euphoria index. Well, we're getting precariously close to that in terms of valuations. And you know, there's going to come a day when the market wakes up and say, you know what, despite the fact that the Fed is there, valuations are ridiculous at these levels. And I think we're right at those. We're precariously close. So we're going to see what happens. There are a lot of people that think 2021, the market gets a mulligan. I'm not one of those people. And there are people that think in the back half of this year, there's going to be this reacceleration. I'm not one of those people. But that's what makes markets, Dan. Um, But just to illustrate and to bring this up, and then you can go back and look at that euphoria panic index. I mean, both of those things are absolutely flashing red. And let me add one more thing before we go to our next slide. Uh, GDP over market cap. So right now, the market cap of the S&P 500 is about 190 (laughs) or so percent of GDP. And I'll say again, the numerator keeps getting higher. And the denominator, in my opinion, it's not going higher. And if anything, it's going lower. So that is also flashing red, my opinion, Dan. So anyway, we'll move on to the next slide. But I just wanted to bring those points up.
1: Yeah, I think price to sales is an interesting one. We know that um, earnings can be manipulated by a whole host of other things. They're obviously very affected by um, interest rate, the ability for companies to kind of borrow and buy back their stock. So, you know, PE is not one that I think a lot of very sophisticated investors spend a lot of time thinking about, but price to sales it is one. And when you see there's just kind of ramp um, in the S&P 500 price to sales ratio, a lot of that has to do with the fact that um, the biggest names Um, in the S&P 500. They won the pandemic. These are companies that have $200 billion in sales. You know who they are. It's Apple, it's Amazon. Then the ones with $100 billion in sales um, are nearing, you know, Facebook is getting up there, Google, obviously. So uh, Microsoft is up there too. So, you know, that metric is just kind of off the charts. And I'll just make one other point. You know, um, Guy and I get a lot of um, uh, tweets. We get a lot of emails from viewers of Fast Money or, or programs like this. And we try to respond to a lot of them, especially very thoughtful ones. And, you know, I have a lot of people say to me, hey, why is it, how is this market so impervious? And, you know, I just make one point talking to a lot of market participants and I think a lot of smart people and a lot of smart commentators, you know, over the last few weeks, there was this notion um, because of the blue wave and and, and that there's just no reason for the markets to go down again. They can't, people couldn't find a reason why the stock market should go down in 2021, given everything that's going on. And that uh, should be kind of alarming. But let's let's flip to the S&P 500. We have a one year chart here, Guy. Um, I drew a line from the prior all time high in February before the market crash um, during the throes of the pandemic. And I connected it to the September 2nd high, the November 9th vaccine high um, and, and a level that the S&P 500 had kind of been banging around on, on uh, either side. In November, in December, we obviously broke out above that early this year. And then I drew another support line that happens to kind of coincide with the September low, the November low pre-election, and now it's rising 200-day moving average. Mm -hmm. What does that range say to you about the S&P 500 for people looking to
0: trade it? Well, the most alarming thing about this chart is the fact that right now the S&P 500 is about 15% or so above its 200-day moving average. And it happens from time to time, but there's always a self-correcting mechanism that brings it back. And, and, And again, I think to Dan's point, for most people, 2021, they don't know, they can't see what that catalyst is. There is no catalyst for the market to go lower this happens to be one of them. And I don't know what the match is going to be that's going to be thrown upon this uh, this powder keg, but it's going to happen. And it's probably going to happen soon. And there are a number of things, not least of which um, this political situation, which really hasn't sorted itself out. And the next couple of weeks are going to be really interesting for a number of different reasons. But th- the thing that sticks out to me here, Dan, is the fact that, again, we're so significantly above the 200-day moving average, and we've been there now for quite a long period of time. You go back over history, and again, you know, history does repeat. You'll see that these things correct, and they correct in a very precipitous fashion. And I know we, we begin to sound like a broken record, and I apologize for that. Uh, there are a number of things to like about the market, but we're trying to point out some of the warning signs that are out there. And I do think the warning signs far more outweigh some of the positive things that are going on.
1: Yeah, I think what you're saying, though, is we've been in this period for now uh, nearing three months where it's just unfettered um, enthusiasm. And sooner or later, you know, the chickens have to come home to roost. Let's move to the NASDAQ 100. We know that those top five or six names make up 50 percent of the weight of that index of 100 stocks. You know, I have a chart here that I uh, nicknamed. It's called the Hungry Alligator. um, Mm. guy. If you can see this one, you see what's going on here. You know, we, we had this kind of rise from the November lows, it was down, you know, 11,000 to maybe 13,000 or so. We have that nice uptrend. It's held it like a boss, as the kids like to say. Look at that support range down at the September um, lows. And then those November lows, which were a higher low, but also you have that 200-day moving average moving up. You mentioned that the S&P 500, the moving average Um, is about 15, 16% below where it was trading. This is almost 20%. This is getting a little overdone here. That's a pretty big range. If that alligator were to take a little bit of a bite, what's your take on the NASDAQ 100? Uh,
0: Well, first of all, I've never heard that term. So see you learn something new every week on the macro setup. I appreciate that, Dan. It sounds very Brian Kelly-esque, but what I will say, and not to get very granular here in terms of individual stocks, but there are some things to be concerned about. Dan mentioned uh, the the predominant names in Mm -hmm. the NASDAQ 500. Just let me mention two. Uh, If you want to sort of play our home game, just take a look at the Apple chart. Apple topped out, I think, on September 2nd, around 138 and change. Recently, it topped out right around those levels, 139. Classic potential for a double top, something to keep in mind. Obviously, you know all the things going around Facebook. Facebook's down about 15% from its all-time high Mm -hmm. on a tape that's been extraordinarily strong. They report earnings at the end of the month. Those earnings are going to be great. One of my concerns about Facebook granularly is the potential for it to fall under the auspices of ESG investing. And I'm not suggesting you go trade Facebook and Apple. My point is that plays into exactly this hungry alligator chart that Dan is showing. And again, 19% over the 200-day moving average. If you thought 15% is alarming, obviously 19% is more so.
1: Yeah, well, get wait. Uh, we'll wait to get uh, really alarmed right here. Look at the Russell two thousand. Obviously, this is a small cap index here. We have a five year chart. Um, you know, it's really interesting that this this one was really the hardest hit of all the major indices. When you think about the balance sheets of the companies um, and where they're exposed to, primarily um, a lot of them very domestically, a lot of financials, a lot of energy. This was kind of ground zero for a lot of destruction during the pandemic, the quarantines, the shutdowns, all that sort of thing. So when um, the vaccines were coming, you know, this this sector really reacted. We have, you know, this near parabolic move since the beginning of November, um, The Russell 2000 is up more than 30%. It's up 35% from its 200-day moving average. You know, this would be one where, and guys, you know, we want to be optimistic about the vaccine rollout. It hasn't gone particularly well here in the United States. A lot of countries, as they did much better with the virus, um, are doing much better with the vaccine rollout. Hopefully that changes in the, in the coming weeks, in the coming months. But what is your take on the um, straight line between here and getting 330 million uh, Americans vaccinated and getting this economy opened? I think the late last year, there was a lot of thought that we might be back up and running fully in the fall. That seems to be a bit of a stretch right now.
0: The, this, the Russell suggests it's going to be without any glitches whatsoever, the rollout. That's exactly mm-hmm. what this chart is telling you. It also suggests that sometime in the back half of this year, it's not only going to be uh, business as usual, but it's going to be better than it was in the end of 2019. I'm hard pressed to believe that's true because I think a lot of things have fundamentally changed. But to answer your question, that's exactly what this move the Russell suggests. And oh, by the way, I think the Russell is probably... <clears throat> Again, if you thought 14% in the S&P 500 above the 200-day was crazy, if you thought 19% in the NASDAQ above the – this is now, Dan, 35%. And and you illustrated this to me prior to the call, so you did the work on this, but 35% above the 200-day moving average, which is remarkable for a number of – different a myriad of different reasons. Um, the Russell suggesting that the, the fall of 2021 is going to be the best period we've ever had in the history of this country, effectively – and I just don't see that happening. And oh, by the way, you have seen we're going to talk about rates in the dollar. But, you know, this move up in interest rates, although some would suggest it's really bullish for a lot of things, I think it's anything but. And at a certain point, it's going to come home to roost, I think, in the broader markets and and granularly in the Russell, the I, as measured by the IWM or the RTY.
1: Yeah, let's let's hit the VIX here. We have a two-year chart. We see that, you know, for the better part of 2019, when the stock market was raging, Um, And people were feeling really good about the economy. We had um, unemployment at 50-year lows, that sort of thing. We saw the VIX spend most of its time in the low teens, right? And so it started creeping up early last year in 2020. And then we saw just that massive explosion um, above 20, as high as uh, 85 or so um, in the throws, really very near the lows of the market in mid-March or so. Um, We've seen a series of lower highs, but we've seen that 20-level hold. And it just, to me, without getting too wonky here, that just tells you – that investors are still kind of peppering here a little bit for protection. They don't feel we're out of the woods, probably for some of the reasons that you mentioned. We're not going to have a lot of visibility on when the economy gets back to those pre-pandemic levels. But right now, given the way the virus is raging and the mitigation attempts and the way the vaccine is rolling out and the political issues, um, it seems like there's enough to buy some downside protection with the VIX at the level of where it was prior to the crash in February March.
0: Over the last couple of weeks um, on moves that have been relatively modest to the downside, you've seen the VIX go from 20 to 30 now twice. And I, I would submit that just shows you what a hair trigger we are in terms of volatility and what potentially could happen. Each time, obviously, it's come back to the mean, the mean being this 21 or so level, but makes you wonder um, you know, what could happen next time th- there's a violent move in the market. Again, that move from 20 to 30 in, in both those days took place over the course of a couple hours in very modest moves. It's just something to consider going forward. Uh, I think you know my view on the VIX. Anytime it gets down to that 21 level or so, it typically signifies the short-term top of an equity move. I think that's happening again here now, Dan.
1: All right, cool. So let's hit rates. You started kind of you know, talking about it a little bit. We have a five-year chart of the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield. We know that that's moved up from its lows. Um, at 50 bips at some point, I think that was in August. There was obviously um, a, a lower low intraday um, back in March, but you know this chart is pretty interesting. We broke that pretty steep downtrend from uh, late 2018 when the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield was like three and a quarter or so briefly, um, and it's just made a series of kind of lower lows. So we've broken. That downtrend, but I think it's really important to look at where the technical resistance is. Back in 2016, prior to the election, when there was some serious growth fields fears global global growth, specifically in China. You know, we saw yields all over the world going low, and at the time, the 2016 low at one point four percent was a max low, I think, from 2012. right? So where are we as far as rates? What is your take as it relates to equities? And then we have a 30-year chart I want to speak to. But I think this is the key. This one is the key, especially given what the Fed has said. But with the market getting ahead, we know the 210 spread is steepening. We know that's been good for banks. But what does this mean for equities and equity valuations in your mind?
0: Well, in my opinion, it's a foregone conclusion to a certain extent that we're going to test those lows back from 2016. So what was basically support becomes resistance. And it probably comes in the form of 1.45 percent or so in the 10 year. Number one. Number two, what does it mean to equities? Well, there are a lot of people would say that raising rates are suggestive of an economy that's improving. And that's bullish for equities. I understand that argument. I'm not again. I'm not one of those people. I think rates are going higher for the wrong reason. And then quickly, Dan, the volatility we're seeing in the bond market again harkens back to to a certain extent what we saw in February, March of last year. Rates, just think about this, for example, 10-year yields have more than doubled over the course of the last six, six and a half, seven months. That's that's extraordinary. But just look at the move over the last month or so when rates have probably gone from 85 basis points to levels we're seeing now. Percentage-wise, That's a significant move that nobody seems to care about. I think the market's going to wake up one day and say, you know what, rates going higher and this magnitude is not bullish. And again, it all speaks to all the points we've made over the last 30 minutes or so. It's all part of this uh, pastiche or um, what's that thing that when people weave the, the blanket together. Mosaic, A mosaic. I you know guy, a mosaic. Thank you. appreciate All right. that. Thank but but,
1: you but but I guess the other way to think about it is this is that it's it's a level of confidence that the economy is coming back and that um the vaccine rollout is coming. You know that that's that's the one thing I would say. So yes, I, I agree a foregone conclusion we get back to those 2016 lows. But those lows are really important. I want to I want to put up a 30-year chart of the 10-year US Treasury yield. And I think it's really interesting because you see that um, probably the, the most well-defined downtrend in the biggest asset on the planet, right? When you mm-hmm. think of U.S. Treasuries and the yield on that. And I think it's really interesting. Look at that first red circle that I have. Um, you know, the market topped out in early 2000 when the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield was above 6%. And then in 2007, the stock market topped out when the U.S. 10-year Treasury yield was above 5%. And then that third circle I have on the right there is the 10 year US Treasury yield topping out at three and a quarter back in late 2018. And the stock market topped out then. Now it went down 20% in a straight line. And the Fed had to get um, a little jiggy, as they would say, with their forward commentary and that sort of thing, and basically saying rates should go to zero. And, and what have they done? They went to zero for all intents and purposes. So I, I look at that um, 2012, 2016, and then the break, uh, let's call it around 1.5%, is really significant. And I think something will happen with equities if we breach that in a meaningful way. And when you look at that downtrend, You'd say to yourself, if you're bullish on yields, that you might see yourself getting back towards two seven five three percent. What does that mean for equities? What does it mean for the economy at that point?
0: Well, you've you've outlined it. Of all the important charts you have brought um, to us today, I think this is the most important because it speaks to exactly that. If you want to understand why equity markets top out in the short term, just look at this chart. And I think Dan, you know, the two, October two thousand and eighteen level, which is the final circle on this chart was if you recall when Jerome Powell came out, and again, I'm paraphrasing, basically said, you know, we're sort of on cruise control to normalize rates and we're going to reduce our balance sheet. And from October of 2018 to early December, the market went down exactly 19.9%, pretty much in a straight line until he was forced to do a complete about-face. And then you've obviously seen what's happened since. Uh, Rates are going higher. I I think that, again, you know, talking about foregone conclusions that genie seems to be out of the bottle what's fascinating about this chart is you can still be in a 30 year downtrend a significant downtrend and still trade up to almost probably close to 3% in terms of the 10 year yields so just think about that there's so much room to go and still have you can still have sort of a bullish thesis in terms of bonds or bearish thesis in terms of yields however you want to discuss yeah. that With yields getting back up to close to 3%, well, probably close to 3%. It's fascinating, and I think this chart speaks to exactly that. Am I concerned? Yes. Have my concerns been unwarranted? 100%. But this is something I think bears watching as well, Dan. You know,
1: Guy, you say that all the time. You say it on Fast Money. You say it when you and I do a lot of content like this for um, for, for folks like Nadex and stuff. And, you know, listen, we're not here to be – we're not your, your hedge fund manager. We're not your broker. We're not your this or that or whatever. We're here to kind of call balls and strikes, right? And, and you know, we're people are wrong all the time for a whole host of reasons, but I think – if you're an investor or you're a trader, I, I think you want to be aware of, of both sides of the coin. And that's what we're trying to do here. All right. We have a couple minutes left, Guy. Let's talk about one. You've been all over the dollar. This has been, you know, um, you don't like to give yourself too many accolades. You've been calling you know, lower lows in the dollar since March. Um, and it's a trade that's worked out really well. I, I do understand that, especially as we got below 90 in the Dixie on that one-year chart, we broke that 92 level. That was a September low. You know, you, you've, you've not been as pounding the table on the near term about it going straight back to, let's say, the five-year lows. Um, But this chart's really interesting. We're seeing a little bit of a bounce. Maybe that, um, you know, makes sense in what we're seeing as far as in the bond market, that sort of thing. What's your take right here? Are you getting ready to reload on this thing? And do you think we see 92 in the Dixie in the next few weeks?
0: Yeah, if you're trading, you know, we talk about Nadex, binary options, knockouts and call spreads. I mean, I think the dollar sets up for if you're looking for a knockout trade, this is it. Do I think we get back to 92? I don't. But given the chart that Dan has drawn and the trend line, this is suggestive that maybe you do see that bounce back to 92 in a still very, you know, a seven, eight, nine month uh, downtrend. Look, I think the dollar is, is destined to be significantly lower this year. I think there are a lot of people that agree with me. I think what we're seeing now is a bit of a relief rally. Maybe that runoff election in Georgia marked the short term bottom for the dollar. It could be. Um, but I do think, you know, we're going to have this conversation a month from now. And we're going to be talking about this DXY, which is now north of 90. I think we're going to be talking about it with an 87 handle. Uh, In the meantime, you could get close to 92. So, you know, trade accordingly. But in my opinion, everything sets up for a weaker dollar. That is consensus. But sometimes, you know what, consensus is right, Dan.
1: Yeah, let's just go quickly to the five year chart and you look at that 2018 low. You know, that's really the only line to draw here. That would be your near term target. And you might take another view depending upon what's going on in the world right there. All right, guy, you've also been uh, really great on gold all year long. Um, Obviously, the last couple of months, it's been kind of odd. And it's also corresponded with that huge move in Bitcoin that we started the show talking about. We have a one year chart of gold here. Let's talk about this. You know, that late. Uh, November low happened to correspond with a breakout from June, July. Um, we also saw that pretty well-defined downtrend from the August the early August highs. Um, we broke that downtrend briefly um, a couple weeks ago, but it's since that the, the Bitcoin surge, you know, over the last month or so, um, this thing has really lost a lot of its mojo. What's your trade on gold here? How are you thinking about it, and for the balance of 2021?
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. So it's an incredible chart. We've we've had this chart up a couple of times. And if you remember, the, probably the last time we came on, when that broke that downtrend line, I said, I, I'm I'm pretty confident that I said, this sets us up for gold to go and take a look at that August 7th high, which I think is around 2075, 2080 or so. Yeah. And it seemed to be spot on. Um, but we unfortunately for the gold bulls, we basically topped out just at the same high we made back in October. Maybe in retrospect, that's right. And obviously now we've broken back through it. I will, if I'm a bear, dollar bear, which I am, I will remain a gold bull. This move down took me by surprise, but again, I just think it's setting up again. If we go through that downtrend line, and that probably comes in either side of 1,900, I don't think it stops this time. So I apologize, you know, for not seeing that. You know, short-term double top around the October highs. But I think the next time through that downtrend line will set us up for a test of that August high, which again was 2075 to 2080. You
1: know, Guy, no apologies necessary here on the macro setup. We call them like we see them, just as we said here, no crystal balls. Um, Let's go to the 10-year chart and let's end on this one for gold. And I just bring this up is that, you know, this thing has had a heck of a run over the last two years and you've been all over it. Literally, you've been all over it from 1,200, okay? I'll just take the other side of this thing and just say, for whatever reason, there's a lot of these arguments, a lot of people who are Bitcoin bulls just saying they're thinking about the percentage of um, Bitcoin's market cap relative to gold and the institutional adoption and the central bank focus on it and all that sort of stuff, you know, maybe that was it. I'm just saying, if you go back and look at that 2011 high, um, you know, and then you look at that 2012 high, I mean, we saw... You know, a precipitous drop, you know, nearly a 50% drop in a five, six year period. And, you know, you're looking at this thing still in a pretty decent downtrend from those August highs. So, this is a chart I think is just really worth kind of focusing on a little bit. I'd say 1800 was yeah. a big level. That's probably for longer term investors where you might want to set a stop. But I know there's a lot of people who say, always own two, 3%. If your portfolio in gold, but just maybe part of that is swapping out of gold into Bitcoin. I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying that might be what's going on here.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly what's going on. It's going to be fascinating to see over the next couple of weeks if Bitcoin gets back to that 20,000 level that we talked about and outlined, what happens to gold? Does gold make the next leg higher or does gold somehow get caught up in that maelstrom? I think gold takes the next leg higher, but that's what makes markets as they say. Anyway, Dan, yeah, This has been extraordinarily informative for me. I find myself not only a participant in these conversations, but a viewer as well. And that's thanks to you. But I also want to thank our presenting sponsor, Nadex, the leading U.S. exchange for binary options. Get ready, Dan. Call spreads and
1: knockouts.
0: Damn straight. Thanks, Dan.
1: <laughs> Same. Thanks, guys.